To all parents, and if you're not parents, imagine yourself as one. How will you respond if one day, la, one day, a boy or a man approach you, whether you're a father or mother, la, or you can't be both, you're either one or the other, with this letter asking for your daughter? So let me present this person. Can I invite John here uh, to read a letter for us? Um, please don't throw uh, your spear at him. I'm here up on stage, I'll, I'm also will be affected. Maybe you can, when he goes down. But let's, as he read this letter, hear it and tell me. How will you respond? Okay. Dear uncle and auntie, I would like to ask for your consent to have your daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I see Pastor Sonsi and Pastor Rennie getting very nervous. <laughs> you consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. <laughs> Would you consent her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insults, persecution, and perhaps a violent death? Thank you, John. Now, I, I, I can see, uh, I don't know whether Uncle Rennie and Auntie Sassi are getting excited when they hear the word India. Now, let me, let, me, let me clarify. This is not a promotion to send your children or your part to or you to our partner churches in India. Sorry, Pastor Raj, uh, we are not sending anybody. But let me ask, uh, here and even online, how many of you will consent your daughters? Uh, after hearing, um, let's say you hear this person um, ask this way. And, and disclaimer, I did not ask Monica's father that way. Okay? So I did not get Monica by, the, by that letter, but how many of you? Maybe a show of hands. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's see online, any response? Okay, no response means I take it, Noah. Thank you for your responses. So, Noah, if you say yes, I salute you. Um, I know it will be a difficult decision. If you are too shy to say no, um, everybody say no here. Lah. It's okay. I know it's not an easy decision. I may not be a father yet, uh, soon to be, but I can imagine, going, imagine the things going through your mind as you hear this letter being read. Almost Every parent will get a shock of their life. Lah. Uh, what, you mean consenting my daughter to die? Let me tell you that uh, this letter is a real letter. Uh, it's not from John's heart, don't worry. Um, but it was in fact a real letter. I added an auntie and uncle for Malaysian flavour. This letter was written by a man named Adoniram Judson. Uh, you'll see it on the slides. Adoniram wrote this letter asking, for his asking John Hasseltin um, this, John Hesertine is a deacon in church for his daughter's hand and Hesertine Hesertine, Hesertine's hand in marriage and if you're wondering whether John consented he did the couple got married on February 5th 1812 after that a day after they got married they were commissioned as missionaries and left to Rangsun, Burma, or, or today we know as Yangon, Myanmar, on February 6, 1812. And let me assure you, they did not go there for the honeymoon. It was, in fact, a missionary trip. Eventually, both of them became America's first foreign missionary. Now, let me tell you, I'm as curious as 
what made John agree to allow his daughter to marry Adoniram. Even after hearing or reading the letter, I mean, if I were the father, right, I'd be like, oh, one hand parang, no, one hand if I can find a gun, no, let the dogs out on him. There must be something that moved John. No, when I was reading this, right, something that moved John, right? Not, not, not Jonathan Ryan here, but Jonathan the deacon. Uh, and moved John to say yes, allowing his daughter to be married to Adoniram. Of course, today isn't so much that by the end of the sermon, right, I won't be calling for a response, asking you if you allow your children or if you want to go to India or be a foreign missionary for God. I mean, I mean, if God moves your hearts, please, by all means, talk to the pastors here. They'll be excited to have you talk to them. But today, that's not my message. Anyway, we will, we will continue on from there. I hope today's message, I, hope, I, I just wanted to start with this story, right? Because I wanted to start asking ourselves, why did Deacon John allow his daughter to go? And I hope that God will speak to us today and help us to see how did John come to such a decision. We're entering into a new theme for this month, if you don't know. The theme for this month is the kingdoms here. And the title for today is Our Priority. Before we proceed further, shall we, shall we just commit this time, commit all of us in a word of prayer? Come, shall we pray? Father, we want to thank you for today. We indeed um, thank you for your grace in accepting us through the death of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that we who were so unworthy Yet you are you, a God who is so worthy of praise and honour, would choose to make us worthy through the death of your Son. And so Lord, today as we come here, all of us, whether we are in church, whether we are listening, whether we are, um, whether we are followers of you, or whether we are seeking or exploring, speak to us today, encounter us, so that we will not leave church, we will not close the TV today, close the phone, close the laptop, without experiencing and encountering you. So speak to us, Lord, this I pray in the most holy and precious name. Amen. Today's topic, our priority. Today's topic isn't an easy one for me to preach. Firstly, because it's a message that also challenges my own faith and causes me to re-examine my own life. Secondly, it isn't easy because sometimes this topic is very familiar. I'm sure many of you would have an idea of what this topic is about, or at least, right, you have heard a few sermons about it. Google it and you will find that there are plenty of articles on the topic of our priority. Don't worry, this sermon today was not taken from anywhere. And I'm sure, you know, as we read today's verse, right, it's even more familiar. I'll tell you the verse later. It's a verse that if you're in church long enough, you would have heard it mentioned many times. Or, in fact, we have quoted it our own self. Let me go to the verse. Today's verse is Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'm sure we have quoted this many times. I'm sure we can. It's, it's, a, it's a verse, right? It's, it's as easy as John 3.16. I mean, I can, we close eyes. After seeing this, close eyes also can memorize. Like, and so today, right, 
this verse in itself is very rich. I'm not saying that, okay, I'm not saying that this verse, right, we quote it and become too familiar and done. There is so much richness to this verse. But like any verse, right, when we look at it in context, it is more enriched. And so today, we look at the bigger picture before I narrow down to this verse. And hopefully, hopefully, as we see this bigger picture, we will be enriched and God will speak to us through His Word. Now, for those of us who don't know, this verse uh, came from Matthew 6, la, it's written there. It's actually part of a sermon, Jesus' sermon. Um, if you put it, if you, take, if you look at your Bible in the book of Matthew, you'll see that chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 are actually all part of one sermon that, that um, you will see titled as Sermon on the Mount. Now, what happens? It was started from chapter 5 where Jesus begins to withdraw to teach. What was happening is Jesus went to a mountain. He began teaching, teaching his followers. Of course, there were crowds that were coming. And these crowds were people who, were, who have witnessed Jesus' amazing miracles. And so they decided to follow him. Now, the main idea of Matthew 5 to 7, right, was this. Jesus, I mean, Jesus don't just give long sermons for nothing. Lah. Um, not like some of the speech we hear sometimes in our political parties and all this. Lah. But you know, Jesus there, right, at that day, it wasn't just mere sermons. It was to introduce a new definition for a new kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, bear with me as I'll be going through a big picture and then after that, narrowing down to the passage. So if you read the book of Matthew, right, if you take the book and you read the whole book of Matthew, right, you realise that, right, there are four, Matthew emphasise, 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 emphasise four mountains. Um, and these mountains are actually, right, the basic, the, um, the emphasis of his gospel. The first one, you will see the mountain of temptation in chapter 4, verse 8. This is where actually the devil brought Jesus up and asked Jesus, bow to me and everything that you see before you will be yours. You have the, mount, the mountain of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Then you have the mountain of transfiguration in chapter 17. And lastly, the mountain of farewell. This is where the Great Commission was given. So these four mountains actually make up the book of Matthew. And if you read, right, it's almost a checkpoint for Matthew as he writes this. Now, focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, right, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you read, uh, if you read Matthew 5 to 7, right, once through, you realise, right, it actually has a correlation uh, with another mountain in the Old Testament. And this mountain was called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was actually where Moses got the law from God. And this is where you get the Ten Commandments and the law that, that actually governed Israel how to live. So you see here, right, it's almost as a parallel, you know. Old Testament, Moses brought the law and then he gave to the people. This is the law that God has given to you to govern, to govern you as God's people, to Israel. Huh? Now over here, Jesus is up on the same mountain and he's giving a new definition to this same law. He's not removing the law. He's giving a new definition. He's saying, right, it's almost as though he's saying, uh, he's redefining some of this uh, redefining some of this law for us. So like, if you read, if you read chapter 5, you see it talks about murder. Alright? And he doesn't talk about, you know, the law, the Old Testament law says, do not murder. But now he says, even if you hate your brothers and sisters, that's murder. The Old Testament says, do not commit adultery. And now Jesus takes the law and redefines it, saying, if you lust after somebody, you're already committing adultery. It, Jesus is redefining that law for us. But more than that, right, you go on to chapter 6. That's where, if you have been with us, you would have heard the Lord's 
prayer, we have preached about it. It's, that's where Jesus redefined also our relational position with God. So it, is, so it talks about, you know, don't just pray now as though God is king. Pray our Father in heaven. So now, he isn't just redefining the laws. He's redefining the people's relational position with God. And after that, when you move on to chapter 7, Jesus redefined again, but he did, this time he redefined our relational position with others. And that's where actually you'll get many, many of these rules, right? Remember, do unto others how you want others to do unto yourself. You'll find that in chapter 7. So this is where, I, I want to give us this big picture so that we can see. This is where actually Matthew 6, right? Verse 33 fits in. Jesus was helping his followers to understand and giving them a new definition. And here in chapter 6, it was a new defining of their relational position with God. So now, let me narrow down to chapter 6. What was chapter 6 all about? Chapter 6, as we go on now, let me narrow down to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where, right, Jesus is initiating now a different way of living. So in chapter 1 to 4, he talks about giving to the needy. Don't just give and where people can see. Give and nobody else can see. He talks about the Lord's Prayer. Don't just pray when others can hear you. Pray when nobody else can hear. Don't just fast and tell everybody you're fasting. Fast when nobody else knows about it. Do not lay up treasures in heaven. Do not be anxious. It almost, right, if you take, let me frame it up for us, right, it's almost, right, Jesus is saying, uh, and if you read, right, there's almost a contrast. Jesus is almost saying, this is the, the piety of religiosity. This is what religious people do. But now, you are no longer just a people of religion. You are a people of relationship. You are no longer people who just obey and follow the law. Now you do it because of your right standing before God. Here, Jesus is already initiating a different way for these people to live. And, and to the people, right, you must understand to the people at the time, right, they are probably listening and Eh, no, I always follow this law. I'm religious. I'm pious. You know, just now, uh, Pastor Daniel was talking about, you know, the Pharisees always calling out to obey the law. But Jesus here is almost redefining it, you know. And, and you see, right, in other words, right, what Jesus is saying, right, is almost as though he's saying this. He's no longer saying, I need to do this. I need to do this because of the law or religion. Rather, it is now, I want to do it because of my positional relationship with God the Father. And I don't know about you, today, today's day is still the same, isn't it? Too many, of, too many people today rather just follow law religiously. And, I, and, and you know, it's very interesting in my, my past few days, the experience, um, talking to different ones, even not from um, from my friends who, who were not attending, they asked me, hey, hey, so your work service, you need to do this, I uh, need to do this, 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 this. Uh. And I'm like, I don't know, do I? You know, and for them, I ask them, why, why do you say this? Why need to follow? They can't explain. They say, no, la, it's always like that. Uh, uh, let me clarify uh, before everybody look at me like very kill me like that. I'm not saying don't do. The fact is, it's not about, oh, I need to do this, but it's rather now, I want to do it. It's no longer, yo, I need to, okay, all the, all the parents are very happy, I need to sweep the floor because, you no know, my mother asked me. 
But now, I see, they're laughing. It's not, I want to do it. God, no, I can't say that. No, no, right. I want to do it because I am my mother's child. And that's what Jesus is saying. To the people, righteousness comes from following the law. But to Jesus, he's defining and saying, righteousness comes because of your position, your relational position with God. And you know, you know why I put initiating again, right? It is not that Jesus, oh, this is, here is something different already. It's always been the same, no? In, in, the, in the Old Testament, Israel was meant to be different. God actually chose Israel. When God started, God chose Israel as a, as a nation that's meant to live differently. So that when people see Israel, when they see Israel, I mean, Israel is a nation, a country, not, not today's Israel, but the Israel of the Old Testament, ancient Israel, they'll see, hey, why are they doing things so different? And then there'll be a light, an example to the nations. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, right, if you have read, right, you'll come across some of the laws, a lot, a lot, a lot of laws. Sometimes I feel more than, more than we can handle. But these laws, right, are actually meant to really show again, right, that Israel is different. Let me give you one law, huh? Uh, next slide, Leviticus 19.9-10. This is what Leviticus said. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourners. I am the Lord your God. You realise uh, there are a few things that in this one law, uh, there are a few things. Uh, number one, not supposed to... Now, even with specs, I still cannot see. Not supposed to reap the fuel up. So when you, when, you, when you reap it, right, whatever left over, you're not supposed to go back and take. You leave it there. So, why? So that, right, those poor people who don't have a harvest, they can come and take it. So that the foreigners who comes to Israel, they see, there are leftovers for them. Even in this law, right, God is telling Israel to take care of the foreigners, the poor among them. And people at that time, right? Uh, sorry, the nations at that time, they never had this kind of things, so no. It was it was almost it was almost unspeakable because people would treat they treat well of their citizens. Why should we treat well of other people? Of foreigners? I mean it's no same from today's today's um, world, isn't it? Any country will treat their citizen well. No country will give unless you are ex- uh, extraordinarily ex- 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 exemplary lah. but no other nation right, will treat a foreigner well but here God is already putting in place for that and I always find it when I read this I find it very amazing because why did God have to put that I am the Lord your God just after the law it's almost saying uh, look do it because I am I do it to show to the nations that I am your Lord. But of course, like today, nobody wants to be different. In my experience in the wake service, in my, in my grandmother's wake service, right, I tell you, I, I can really understand the fear of standing out or wanting to be different. I remember coming, right, I didn't know that I must wear white shirt and black pants. No, and the day I came white shirt and um, very light-coloured pants, and I realised I'm the only one, no, and I feel so weird. Uh, you know, even when I came, right, the first day, right, I came with a black shirt, though. Uh, because I thought, oh, okay, like, you know, 
a wig service, you know, come with a black shirt, right? I didn't know that as a, as a grandson, I'm supposed to wear white. And all my other cousins and uh, uncles and auntie were wearing white. And, and the whole day, right, I was just wishing, right, where, where my parents going to get a white shirt or you want to go back, I want to go back. And nobody wants different. I don't want to be different. I don't want to stand out. And similarly today, people, nobody wants to stand out. The same they did. That's why Israel did this. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people tell prophet Samuel this, no. Although God has set them to be different, right, this is what they tell people. This is what they told the prophet. No, they said, we want a king over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with a king that will lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's so weird because Israel right, had a king. God is their king. You see in the law before that, God says, do this because I am the Lord your God. I am your king. But now the people look at other nations, yo, they got king. They got king. They got king. We also want a king. We want a human king. So they tell the prophet, we want a king. We want to be like other nations. Of course, you know the, you know the story, Lakan. God gave them a king and they became like any other nations when they were supposed to be different and have God as their king. And actually, if I look at, if I look at today's world, it's not much different, isn't it? Sometimes church wants to be like the world. And I'm not saying right, being different for the sake of being different. But the church is supposed to be different, right, for a purpose. Just like how Israel was supposed to be different, to show to the nation around them who God is. The church today has to be different to show to the world, the watching world, who our God is. Yet many churches today, many Christians, have lost that because of a desire of wanting to be the same. I'm no different. Please let me tell you, as I said this, right, I'm also talking about myself. We don't like to be different. We want to be like the rest. I want to be like the rest. And many times, because of that, we lose out on God's supernatural power and presence in our life. So, sorry, coming back to Matthew 6. So here, Jesus was initiating again a different way of living. But as you go further, right, in that verse itself, I narrow down to the verse, right? Now I go now narrow down to the passage, verse 9 to 34. Jesus continued pressing further, and now he's issuing the call to be different. It's not just live a different way. You must be different. And, you know, how do we... How, how, and now, right, if you start here, right, Jesus began to target people's heart. How do we know somebody's heart? Jesus gave very clear example as I was reading, right? Two things that Jesus highlighted. The things we treasure the most, the things that worries or concern us the most. And both are connected. You, know, you cannot separate one or the other. Nobody can treasure something and yet not be concerned or worry about it. For example, the more money people have, the more worry they are about how to keep it, increase it, or stop others from stealing it. It's like, I buy a new phone, and I treasure this phone. I'm never going to be worried about it in case you know, my sister going to touch it and then drop it on the floor. It's the same. You cannot keep one treasure one and not worry about it. And here Jesus talks about it and targets the people's heart. And here I want to look at the aspect of worry. You know, I used to think, okay, like, humans, right? And, and believe me, I'm somebody who worries a lot. And I always think, okay, like, worry a little bit, okay, like, it's, it's, a, it's a weakness. 
It's human to worry. But I begin to see that it is not a little weakness we all give from time to time. It is a sin that is strictly forbidden. You know, this person, um, a New Testament scholar, an American New Testament scholar, I won't pronounce his name, R.H., he said this, and I thought it's, it, it is very interesting. It caught my eye when I was reading it. Worry is practical atheism. Atheism is, the, uh, is a belief that you don't believe in any God, uh, and then a font to God. I thought this is very true, isn't it? Because Jesus gave three, reason, three reasons why worry is practical atheism. Number one, worry is unnecessary. Jesus talks about Jesus gave the example of birds. He said, look at the birds. Nobody works harder than birds. They, you know the phrase, the early bird gets the worm, correct, right? The early bird gets the worm, right? I, I like the phrase, but I always find like, yo, wake, wake up early, I no need la. You know, that kind of thing. Nobody works harder than birds. Yet these birds, right, they have nothing to worry God always have, God always provides for them. God looks after them. Jesus put your heavenly Father looks after them. So how much less should we worry? Second, Jesus listed here, worrying cannot add a single hour to life. Which is true. Jesus talked about the past cannot be changed. The future cannot be charted. Nobody, right, stands here, right, and I worry, 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 and after that, oh, instead of living until 88, I live to 90. Worry. Worry someone, okay, 92 years old. Nobody do that. Worry cannot add. And the, lastly, Jesus talks about worry that is blind because he refused to learn the lesson that God is a God who provides. God's providence. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. As short as their life is, in their quiet, dependent on their environment, they display such peace that actually all followers of Jesus should have. So I put it this way, worry is essentially a failure to trust God. Again, let me say that, in saying this, it's a message to myself. I'm somebody who, who people label me as somebody who worries a lot. A very cautious person. You can just ask my sister. She always say, no need worry lah. And she always think that I worry for nothing. It's true, I, I, I admit and it's a journey to take, but worry is essentially a failure to trust God. And for followers of Jesus, what Jesus is saying here right, in this whole passage is that those of little faith hurts God greatly. That's why Jesus put it that way. And if we do not trust Him, how can we put God first? That's what Jesus is saying. And actually, this is where verse 33 and 34 comes in. The first thing, as I look at Matthew... Oh, they want, to, they want me to end it so fast. Oh. I've got 15 minutes there, don't bluff me. Okay, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Oh, I say, now I need to put... Thing. The first thing I see, it was Jesus is instilling a new motivation. You know, the verse Matthew 6, 33, I began with this statement, but, a conjunction, the word, but is a conjunction, the word but, it lets us know that it's not a standalone verse. It is a continuation of a conversation, right, that started much earlier already, as early as verse 19. The conjunction joins Matthew 6, 33, 
to the rest of what Jesus is saying. So indirectly, right, this makes Matthew 6.33 an alternative to worrying. The alternative to worrying, right, is this new motivation. Seek first the kingdom of God. And if you see the word seek first right here, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In the Greek, right, seek the word seek first, actually in English also, lah. in the Greek and English, seek first is a present imperative verb. It means, right, one has to keep pursuing it. It's not just pursue one time only, but you continue pursuing it without stop. And the pursuing here, what is the pursuing here? Seek first, the, that means if I can rephrase it, Pursue. Pursue the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So now Jesus is saying this, in conjunction with what I said, uh, why do you worry? Don't worry. Pursue God's kingdom. Have the right treasure. And this right treasure is this. The right treasure is the call to be different. The way of living differently that stems out from our position and relationship with God. The kingdom of God is our new relational position. Pursue our new relational position with God. Pursue this. Pursue this relational position that's been given to you. And pursue a life that's different. That is what Jesus... This is the new motivation that Jesus is instilling to His followers. And He said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all this will be added unto you. In other words, right, instead of being driven or motivated by, by the treasures on earth or out of fear or worry, we should instead be driven or motivated by the thought of pursuing this new relational position we got. We sang the song just now, Pursue. I, I didn't plan, nothing was aligned today, but I thought the song came out as very interesting. Pursuing this new relational position we got. Pursue a life that's different in the way we live. Now, when I, when, I was, when I was preparing that, I was thinking, so does this mean that, you know, we all quit our job and be, be in church 24-7 instead of encounter nights on the last Saturday of the month, right? We have encounter nights 24-7 here, lah, every day just stay here, lah, right? Or, be full-time workers, lah, missionaries. But if I look at Israel, right, that's not what it is. You know, Israel didn't, right, just build a temple and worship God 24-7. They still had their daily life. That's why all the laws. They still got things to do. They still had to progress as a nation. They were a group of small people, and then they progressed to become a nation. They were still finding the promised land that God had promised them. They were still fighting wars. They were still fighting battles. They still did all of those things. But you know, the motivation for Israel to do it, right, is not just to be bigger. It's not just to gloat to the other nations, hey, I'm bigger. It's not just to have a security, security, it's not just to have security measures, be bigger so that other nations cannot attack. It's not that, it's not being driven by those things. They fought battles, they seek out the promised land, they have laws to show the other nation, what is it, who God is, and what does it mean to live as God's people. That's why when they battle, God says, I will battle for you. And they are better, they win, are miraculous. They were a small, small, small nation, and yet they won many great battles to show who God is. 
pursuing God's kingdom and His righteousness does not hinder progress. You know, so how would this look like in our world today? When we work, right, whether it's in corporate sales, whether it's in the marketing, programming, education, technical work, the motivation now is not because we want to earn a certain status. It's not even to be rich. It's not even to earn a living or have financial security. I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it is wrong to be rich. I'm not saying it's wrong to earn money. But now the motivation, right? Yes, we work to earn money. I mean, that's, that's natural. But the motivation or the priority is that we do it because of our new positional relationship with God. Remember just now I talked about we need to do this versus we want to do this? So now we, we work, right? Not because we need to do it so that we earn financial securities. But now we do it, we want to work because we are God's people. Of course, ideally, in an ideal world, it means that no such thing as Monday blues, right? You know, I know it's tough. I, I, I agree it's tough. Being a, being a full-time worker doesn't mean you wake up, okay, yes, I get to preach now. Nobody, I, I don't wake up like that, I'll be honest with you. I start wake up, you need to do Bible study. Uh. I also do that. But it's a process that I'm showing us that this is what God meant when He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when this becomes, this, sorry, this, when we seek, when this becomes our motivation, seeking God's kingdom, seeking our new identity, our relational position with God, seeking being different in the way we live, it will eventually translate in our giving, as Jesus talks about, our prayer, our fasting. But more than that, it will also translate in how we treat people, how we do our jobs, how we study. Sorry, I look at the youth, they feel after they're glaring at me. How we study? How we, how we face difficulty? Or even when we get promoted? You know, the other part, that Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all this will be added unto you. It's, you know, it's a nice slogan, sometimes we use for our life. But can I show us this? It is also an invitation to trust and surrender. You know, at the end of the day, when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all this will be added to you, He's actually inviting us to trust Him and allow Him to be our provider. You know, sometimes this statement, right, seek first the kingdom of God and all this, can be, and all this will be added unto you, right? Sometimes we hold it so tight, it can become very legalistic. A, a statement we throw to condemn ourselves or condemn others. Look at ourselves. Hey, you are not seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm such a failure. I'm a bad Christian. You know, sometimes it can be that. But today, I want, I want to see that instead of seeing that way, when Jesus said, seek first, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all this will be added, all this will be added to you, is in fact an invitation. The heart of it is in fact an invitation. You know, Jesus is not saying, okay, get your priorities straight, and that's all. But Jesus is actually saying, trust me. Don't worry about the rest. Set your end goal or priorities right and I'll take care of you. You know, when we pursue God's kingdom and His righteousness, as Jesus said just now, we will lack nothing. Does this mean we will have no difficulty or troubles? 
No, it does not. Does it mean that sometimes we may get less? It may. We may get more. Praise God. But less does not mean we will lack. We may get less. Maybe that we choose to be different in our workplace. But you know, the promise of Jesus is we will never lack in our necessities. People who who who, who pursue under-table with corruption uh, will get more money. Yes, it's true. Who claims more when they're, when they're not supposed to claim is true. We do get less, but we will never lack. And you know, sometimes this invitation to trust and surrender is exactly the good news of Jesus, the gospel. You know, in my, in my conversation with different ones sometimes, you know, who is the most resistant to the gospel? To the good news of Jesus. Growing up, I used to think oh, the sinners are the one most, most resistant. Like those who are, do bad things, the murderers, all those, right? You know, such a judgmental person, right? You can ask my sister, I am a very judgmental person. But I realize it's not, no. It is those who, who are the self-made person that are most resistant to the gospel. That feel like, I don't need to trust Jesus. I have everything. Why do I need to trust so, you know, today I hope, right, we see this part, that Matthew 6, verse 33, 34, is in fact an invitation by Jesus to trust and surrender all our worries and cares to Him. Before I conclude, I want to share four stories of what it means to seek God's kingdom first, and God's kingdom and His righteousness. The first story is, from a, new is a story from a New Testament, the story of Apostle Paul, just when Paul, you know, if you read the book of Acts, right, the later part, Paul intended to go Spain to evangelize Western Europe. And you think going um, on this kind of mission, right, everything will be smooth, right? But it's not. He was detained in Jerusalem. He was in prison two years in Caesarea. In fact, he hustled and aboard a ship for Rome, right? A typhoon overwhelmed the vessel and he sank. He managed to swim to a nearby island, only to be bitten by a snake, a viper. And he ended up stranded on the island for three whole months. And if you read Acts 27, 28, where this story is, you realize, actually, Paul is not really very frustrated. In fact, he's not frustrated at all. He kept his head above the waters. He remained even-tempered. Although his missionary desire, his missionary dream, was taught. He was in prison and he wanted freedom. He was, he was forced into inactivity when he wanted action. He desired to reach Rome, but the wind blew against him. He was a man of progress for the gospel, making no progress at all. One thing to redeem time, he took any ship, and yet he was stranded on an island. Of course, if you read Acts 27, 28, in time, the sea lane opened and Paul soon managed to board another ship for the remainder of the trip. But you know, Paul remained so calm and I always wonder why. It was because I saw that his life and ministry was so entrusted to the Lord that he took everything that came to him, right? Both the storms and the storm as from God. 
experience taught him to trust in the Lord's providence and to lean on God's promises. It was not in due time, but in divine time for Paul, that Paul reached Rome. His nerve held steady in the storm because he knew how to trust and waited on his God. The second story is a story from an inspired missionary. Let me go back to Adoniram. I don't know whether you are still interested in him. Adoniram and Anne time in Burma was not an easy one. Although, you know, it started so well, wow, everybody was, look at them going off to Burma. But it wasn't an easy one. Ransun at the time was a filthy and crowded place. The atmosphere was oppressive. The work, discouraging. By 1820, only 10 converts, but at a cost. One of Judson's child was stillborn. Another died of tropical fever. You know, when war broke out between England and Burma, the Burmese suspected of Adonio of being a spy, so they locked him up. Every evening, he was hanged upside down with only his head and shoulder resting on the ground. Anne, who was pregnant again, visited government officials one after another, urging for her husband to be released. Eventually, Adoniram was released. But both Anne and Maria, which is the little one, passed away of fever. Adoniram suffered a mental breakdown that nearly took his life and ministry. But God wasn't finished with him. God still had a plan for him to change the world. From 1826 onwards to his death, Adoniram helped lead hundreds of Burmese and people from the Karen tribe. Karen tribe is a tribe in Burma, lah, to saving faith in Christ Jesus. He also translated the Bible and other Christian works to Burmese and other languages. He inspired the American Baptists to form a society for global missions. You know, how he managed to do all of this, how he managed to persevere on, was the words of his first wife. A little while, we are in eternity. Before we find ourselves there, let us do much for Christ. The third story is a story of my, my CF friend. A CF friend from my university days worked as a sales agent and in, in a corporate firm. I will not disclose any information out of my promise to him for allowing me to share this story. He was an ambitious and friendly person. He excelled in many things. And because of that, he soon became one of the top salesperson in the company. What started out as a friendly gesture, right, to his supervisor in pocketing extra cash from different claims and clients became an, an unhealthy trend. Before he knew it, he wasn't just pocketing large amount, but he began, to, began thinking of ways how to earn extra and worse still, find ways to tear down his colleagues. His motto, his motto at the time was, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. If I don't do it, they will do it to me. It wasn't until last year, two years ago, we're in 2022, that his action indirectly resulted in the termination of two colleagues from the company. That incident hit him badly. He felt ashamed, he felt embarrassed, and he began to re-evaluate, re-examine his life. I mean, it's a nice story to say that he managed to get the two colleagues back to the company, but unfortunately, it didn't happen. Of course, it's not the end of the story. 
Now in a different company, his goal and motto is no longer to earn money or tear down others to climb the corporate ladder. He's still an excellent employee. In fact, he's in a higher position now than he was in the previous company. But now he strives to amplify Christ by being a trustworthy, honourable and compassionate employee and manager to his workers. The last story is a personal story. It's my own personal story. For many of us who knows me or, or you may not know, I suffered from a fear of losing control, fear of not being in control. And at times, this often led to a mild agoraphobia, which is the fear of being in a new place. It's also the reason why I don't like sitting on a plane. Lah. But you know, in, it's these two years that really God had to challenge me to show me that I cannot always be in control. I always work very hard, right, to try to be in control. I try to excel in things that I can do so that I stay in control. But anything that I learned in the last two years, it is one thing to excel and strive to be in control. It's another to really be in control. When my wife had a miscarriage, I realized I, I can't do anything. I questioned God's goodness. I hated the song at one point. What's the song? Um, running after, no, your goodness is running after me. I said, why should I trust you? I'd rather trust myself. God had to humble me and show me that, that His goodness still prevails. I began to see that trusting God and letting go of control. I used to think I can do both. But I was wrong. Trusting God and letting go of control goes hand in hand. No, my dear friends, my dear family, as we kickstart the team, the kingdom here for this month, I want to say that the kingdom is already here. It is more than just a team for the month. It's a reality, whether we can see it or not. And unfortunately, right, sometimes life tells us otherwise, isn't it? We end up being caught in the thorns and chokes of life, trying to survive, all the more in the past two years. Maybe even before restoration can happen, we need to reevaluate our own life and priorities. Maybe for some of us here, we need a reset button. You know, I remember a wise mentor once told me, in failure, there's a joy of restarting. So today's message is for all of us. Whether you're sitting here in church or you're in, at home watching, whether you have been a Christian for as long as you can remember, or you're just exploring Christianity today. For those of us who are here as Christians, maybe life has cornered us to pursue other things. Let me be honest with you, Ida, it will happen to the, even to the best of us. I'm, I can share with you many stories about how I feel as well. Maybe we have not showcased, we have not shown God to the people in our lives. We treasure other things and have many worries. We prioritize other things over our identity as God's people. My dear family, my dear friends, I'm here to tell you there is a reset button here today. 
the message of Matthew 6, 33. It's Jesus' invitation for His people today to trust in Him. Surrender the things we treasure and the most. Surrender our worries. It's not easy. I know it's not easy. I'm struggling. I'm in the midst of struggling as well. But today's invitation is as real to any of us here as, real as it is to me. That Jesus is inviting us to trust Him. Pursue Him and trust Him that He will take care of us. Will we make this choice today to accept this invitation so that we can align our priorities? For some of us, maybe this is the first time you're hearing this kind of message. You're exploring what Christianity is all about. And let me tell you, it's not a coincidence you are here today listening to the message. You have tried to be religious, whether it's any other things, even Christianity. But you find yourself feeling unsatisfied. Jesus' invitation is for you as well to taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. This is how good our God is. A God who is willing to do anything to win His people back. Father, we know, You know life is fragile. And Lord, we want to thank You that every time we fail, You have given us a reset button. Father, we, we acknowledge sometimes life has cornered us to pursue other things. We acknowledge that many times we have so many worries on our plate. Lord, help us to trust You, to surrender so that we can have full restoration. Help us to surrender to Your ways and plans for us so that we can follow Your call and faithfully follow You all the days of our life. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good thing that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom forever be the glory 